Oxford Net Zero, Climate in the Balance. Um, I'm Steve Smith, the Executive Director of the Oxford Net Zero Initiative. And each week uh, I get to talk to leading thinkers here at Oxford about what it will take to reach net zero emissions of greenhouse gases. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Nick Eyre to discuss zero carbon energy specifically. Now, many of you will probably know Nick already. Uh, for those of you who don't, he's the Professor of Energy and Climate Policy in the Environmental Change Institute, as well as being co-director of the programme on integrating renewable energy at the Oxford Martin School here. Um, he's been at the forefront, really, of research on energy systems for the last couple of decades, uh, really throughout the course of carbon and climate emerging as issues here in the UK for the energy system. So he was director of strategy for the Energy Savings Trust, uh, director of the UK Energy Research Centre, UKIRK, um, and is now currently director of CREDS, which is a national centre for research into energy demand solutions. So Nick's going to give us a big picture view today of the energy system, but it's worth knowing he's also a climate change science advisor to Oxford City Council, so has a real understanding of how these issues look right down at the local level where the rubber often hits the road as well, in case you want to ask him about that. Um, and we do want your questions today, so you can ask throughout the talk, and I'll be picking out your questions as we go along and uh, asking Nick uh, throughout the talk, hopefully, and also at the end. So to ask a question, um, you must be logged in on Crowdcast rather than watching on uh, YouTube. If you've logged into Crowdcast and are watching there, hopefully you'll see an ask a question button at the bottom right of the screen. And that will open a window in which you can write. And also importantly, you can vote up the questions that you like to so we can see which ones are, are popular. Um, we are recording this event and it will be available to watch on YouTube afterwards via the Oxford Martin School channel along with all the other conversations in this Oxford Net Zero series. So um, without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Nick. Nick, over to you. Thanks, Steve. Um, I hope people can see that uh, slide on, on full screen now. Um, so what I want to cover uh, in, in, in the next hour are these five questions. Um, why do we want to, to move to zero carbon energy? Uh, what does that imply for energy systems uh, and what we get from energy systems? And then address two sub-questions within that, how we uh, get to a zero carbon energy supply system. And how do we use less energy and use it more efficiently? Because those turn out to be two very important questions. Uh, and then end by looking at what are the key challenges, really much, very much from the spectrum perspective of uh, an energy researcher rather than a climate researcher. So starting with um, why zero carbon energy, and I'm going to be very quick here because I, I, I suspect uh, most of the people listening know very well why we need to get to something close to zero carbon uh, energy. Uh, and there are, there are talks in this series which will uh, explain that a lot better than I can do. Uh, but this is my uh, quick uh, and simplistic uh, view of the matter um, based on uh, work uh, undertaken by Yuri Rogli and others, but lots of, uh, of similar diagrams in, in well-respected academic papers. Uh, what are the implications of the Paris Agreement? Well, basically, there are two key commitments in, in the Paris, uh, Paris Agreement. One is to get to, uh, to constrain global average temperature rise to uh, two degrees or 1.5 degrees. Uh, that implies rapid decarbonisation starting now. The, the green pathways on this diagram show you less than two degrees, the blue 1.5 degrees. Um, in either case, we need rapid decarbonisation starting now. Uh, and the net zero commitment, which this series is uh, principally about, means that we need to reach net zero emissionless. Now, when we reach net zero emissions is a different question, but um, the, the combination of rapid decarbonisation and reaching net zero emissions means that we need to reach net zero emissions by mid-century or, or not long after. Um, what does that mean? Uh, uh, what, what's the relationship of, of, of this to energy? Well, this is a, a diagram taken from the last full IPCC uh, report looking at where great global greenhouse gas emissions come from. 
uh, rising in the period 1970 to 2010, uh, not every year, but pretty consistent rise over the period. And you can see that the, that the biggest contribution by far is CO2 emissions from fossil fuel burning. Um, with CO2 from land use, the red bar, uh, another substantial uh, section, and then uh, the, the, the other greenhouse gases, uh, methane, N2O and F gases. I'm not going to say anything about those other greenhouse gases uh, today, nor am I going to look at CO2 from land use, which was um, very well covered uh, in, the, in the last uh, talk in, in, in this series. I'm only focusing on um, fossil fuel. Uh, emissions um, and the implication of, of net zero I think is that we need to get pretty close to zero in CO2 emissions you can argue that we, we might be able to um, do some uh, negative emissions either within the land use sector or, or, or through ge ge geoengineering other uh, negative emissions technologies but realistically, uh, everybody thinks that we are going to have to get that see that yellow block there down to close to zero uh, by by 2050 or, or, or not long after. Um, I think the sort of working assumption for those of us who work in energy has to be that we need something approximating to net to, to, to zero carbon energy by, by mid-century. Yeah, and Nick, just um, it's probably worth us being clear at the start what we mean by energy and energy systems as well, because I know there can be some confusion on this point, can't there? Whether it's whether we're talking about electricity or something broader than that, and m maybe on top of that, you could also give us a flavour. We're talking about net zero by twenty fifty. What does that really mean in terms of timescales? So, how does that compare to, you know? A power plants or critical parts of the energy right system. so uh that's the, the first question is yeah is an important one steve and it, it's uh, uh people commonly uh interchange energy and electricity which is is, is very unhelpful uh so by energy uh i mean uh anything that uses uh, an external uh energy source um that could be fossil fuels it can be nuclear uh it can be renewables but to provide an energy service so the sorts of things that we get from energy are warmer buildings the ability to move around the ability to to, to make things uh, so the energy system is the whole system that provides for those energy services so it's a pretty broad concept and certainly broader than electricity because we need to reduce and, and and that's in this context it's the energy system that's important because we can eliminate carbon emissions from electricity uh, and we need to do that but that's not sufficient we need to eliminate it from all the other things that we use energy for, for such as heating buildings and, and, and transport um, time scales yeah time scales are the, the critical challenge and, and uh, the reason that most people think that anything quicker than 2050 uh, is really very challenging is because parts of the infrastructure are around for, uh, for, for decades. So typical uh, car would last for, for 10 years, uh, typical power station 20 or 30 years, typical building perhaps 100 years, so longer than the timescales that we're talking about. So we are talking about uh, really very radical changes to the infrastructure on something like the lifetime of those infrastructure systems. Um, let me move on then to what um, zero carbon implies for energy systems. And the first <laughs> but critically important point is that our global energy systems are dominated by, uh, by, by fossil fuels. You can see there um, from the International Energy Agency, what are uh, the global energy supply looks like, dominated by oil, uh, the big orange section at the bottom, natural gas and coal, the blue sections at the top. Um, smaller contributions from biofuels and waste, that that's that the size of that often surprises people. But please don't run away with the idea that that's modern clean biofuel plants. Most of that is biofuels being collected by very poor people, usually very poor women. 
uh, in uh, the global south and used for, for, for cooking and, and heating. So uh, probably not something that most people would see as sustainable or desirable. There are smaller contributions from nuclear there in green uh, and hydropower in blue, which have been around for a long time. And those of you with good eyesight can see the, the small yellow section in the middle, that's new renewable energy sources, largely wind and solar. So I'm gonna be talking quite a lot about those today, but I think it's really important to understand at the outset that those are uh, contribute a very small share of global energy supplies at the moment. So if we're to rely on them a lot more, it is a big change. Uh, the second point I want to make is that um, the energy system is hugely important. Um, affordable and reliable and modern uh, energy services are a basic human need. That doesn't mean everybody has them. Uh, we still have three quarters of a billion people on earth with no access to electricity uh, and, and uh, over two and a half billion without access to clean fuels for cooking uh, and sustainable goal uh, sustainable development goal seven uh, is aiming to get those numbers down to zero by 2030 which is a, a really uh, important but uh, uh, challenging uh, ambition uh, in uh, in high income societies, all our basic infrastructure, <clears throat> all our public services are critically dependent on reliable energy supplies. Without energy, we would <coughs> we, we couldn't run uh, our food system, our water system, our health system, our education system. Um, so energy is critically important. And I think what that means is that some simplistic slogans like stop digging up fossil fuels um, well, yeah, that's where we need to end up, but it's not a credible strategy uh, on its own. Indeed, I would see it as the outcome of a systemic change in the way that uh, the energy system works, the, the way that we provide energy services, rather than the starting point for, 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 for analysis. Um, so what does that energy transition need to look like? Well, clearly there's there's uh, huge amounts of research uh, going on in, into that. I'm going to try and summarise it in, in, in one diagram and that the, that the numbers uh, in these charts uh, come from an influential paper by uh, Arnold Grubler uh, uh, and, and others from, from 2018. But there are, there are similar, similar uh, analyses by other people. Um, and the key messages are we need to do two things. We need to reduce energy demand and we need to shift uh, that demand uh, from fossil fuels to, to renewable energy. Uh, so you can see the left-hand chart there uh, projecting that uh, global energy demand needs to fall by uh, something like 40%. Um, more than that in the global north, more like 50% in, in the global north to allow for growth in energy service demands in uh, the poorer countries uh, in, 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 in the world. Um, and on the right-hand side, the share of primary energy supply, uh, and this is a, a useful chart because it goes right the way back to 1900, allows you to see the growth there that there's been in coal and then oil and then gas during periods or during the industrial revolution. And you can see that the change in supply mix that's needed with growth in wind and solar hugely rapidly over the next few decades. So those transitions happen, happening much faster than the transition uh, to oil and the growth in oil in, in post second world war uh, energy systems. That's uh, why this is a challenging um, a process. Uh, and those are the global numbers. You, if you look at UK numbers from the Committee on Climate Change, they look pretty similar. They look uh, like a 50% reduction in UK energy demand by 2050 and uh, at least six-fold growth in supply of renewable energy uh, from the numbers that, that, that we have now. And one uh, key point that actually links the, the reduction in energy demand and the shift to renewable energy is, is electrification. Both of these point in the direction of increased uh, electrification, a bigger uh, role for electricity in the overall energy system. Uh, re the 
That's because the key renewables, wind and solar, largely produce electricity. So we expect to see the supply side shift in that direction. Uh, but also the energy uh, efficiency improvements implied uh, on the left hand side require fuels that can be used more efficiently and electricity in general can be used much more efficiently than fossil fuels can directly. So these two changes, reducing energy demand and shifting renewable energy are, are, are linked in, in that way. Um, so I want to go on now to talk a bit more about, about each of those and we'll start with the, the, the shift to, to renewable energy. Uh, so how do we get a zero carbon energy supply? Um, there are three broad options, um, renewable energy, fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage uh, and, and nuclear power. Uh, and if I'd been giving this talk um, even 10 years ago, um, I think there'd have been a, a, a more even emphasis on those. But I think now what has become clear is that renewable energy sources are likely to be the dominant uh, contributor uh, uh, to that. Um, I mentioned the importance of electricity. If we look at uh, electricity systems, this, this looks a bit similar to the chart I showed earlier, but this is about just electricity globally, as opposed to the total uh, energy system. Uh, again, you see coal in blue and natural gas in green playing a very large role at the moment. Oil, uh, the dark blue plays a much smaller role in, in electricity production. It's used pr primarily in, in transport. Uh, and you see bigger relative roles for, 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 for nuclear and hydro uh, as though as these are fuels that are used uh, largely for electricity uh, production. Uh, and, and on this chart, the good news is that you can see wind and solar, they're actually a big enough share to get a label even. Uh, so wind in blue, solar in purple there at the bottom, starting from very, very low shares again, uh, again uh, but now rising uh, quite quickly. So uh, a, a lot more cause for optimism when you look at uh, 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 this diagram. So the key renewables uh, are these four. Hydro uh, historically has been very important, been part of electricity systems almost since their inception in the late 19th century. Uh, biomass is potentially important and, 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 and can be stored more easily than uh, many renewables, but raises questions about uh, the impacts of uh, production on the terrestrial biosphere and the food versus fuel debate. Uh, I think anybody who heard uh, the talk uh, last week uh, by, by, by Natalie and Cecile will, will, will have realised, if they didn't know before that, uh, that the idea that we can grow very large amounts of, of biomass just to produce carbon uh, and that that's good for the environment is, is overly simplistic, that nature-based solutions don't point towards uh, monoculture biomass plantations, which are generally what are used for producing bioenergy. So we're left with uh, wind and solar, and the good news about both of those is they have uh, that the resource base is huge. Uh, for wind, it's very largely uh, remains untapped. It's it's variable across the world. In the UK, we have a particularly good wind resource that could easily supply all of our energy. Um, uh, particularly this time of year, we have not such a good um, solar resource, but it's still uh, not bad. Uh, and what we've seen in recent years is dramatic cost reductions in, uh, in, 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 in the price of solar, which making it, making it a much cheaper resource. This, this slide shows you the scale uh, of what's happened to solar costs in, 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 in the last uh, 35 years, starting in 1976. It's a, uh, um, if you look Carefully, it's worth noting that the uh, the y-axis is a logarithmic scale because that's the only way you can sensibly show this. Um, there's been a 200-fold reduction in uh, the costs of um, uh, solar modules in that that period. So, in 1976, the modules for a typical two-kilowatt household system would have cost you uh, something like 100,000 pounds, 100,000 dollars. Now they'll cost you something like $500. So they've gone from being a technology that was 
essentially only used in spacecraft uh, to one that is uh, accessible and affordable uh, to many people for electricity generation. Uh, and indeed, if you look at the, uh, the range of renewable technologies, this is a, a somewhat more complex chart taken from the International Renewable Energy Agency showing all the major uh, electricity generating uh, renewable options uh, and, and the, the, the change that has been over the decade from uh, 2010 to 2019. Uh, and you can see that biomass, geothermal and hydro have all been um, cost effective for quite a long time, but the, the resources are, are, are limited. Uh, but solar and wind have become um, uh, economic, uh, not only becoming uh, uh, amongst the cheapest of low carbon options, but increasingly the cheapest of all electricity generating options. And certainly in many uh, uh, countries close to the equator, solar PV is now the most economic way to generate electricity, which means we can do uh, carbon emissions reduction at a negative cost, of course, which is a hugely important change. Nick, so I, I may jump in with a yeah. couple of questions now, yeah, actually, sure. if that's all right, because we've got, got plenty coming in. Right. And maybe uh, I'll just pick out a couple that are sort of on linked points to what you've just covered. Um, Rosalind asks, have we got enough energy without fossil fuels and nuclear? So I, I think you touched on the fact that wind and, wind and solar have a lot of potential. Yeah. So are you confident that uh, issues of potential are not a problem here to meet demand. And also, um, I've got a question from Dr. Mark Robbins saying, do you have any views on small scale or mini nuclear options? I think you, you focus quite a lot on solar and wind yeah. and uh, and the cost reductions there, but do you see a role for innovative new nuclear? Yeah, okay, so if I take each of those, and the, the short answer is there is that the solar resource in, in, in the world is is huge, even in this country, we could supply all our energy from solar in principle, and we wouldn't want to supply all our energy from solar, but it, we could do it using a very small fraction of the land area of the UK. Now there have been claims in the past that isn't the case, but they simply are not correct. Is it that the solar resource that hits the Earth's surface is thousands of times more than the, the, than the energy that, 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 that we need? Wind, it's different in different countries, but if you're in the central plains of the US or Western China, uh, as well as the, uh, the Atlantic seaboards and the Pacific seaboards in, in, in other countries, then the wind resource is also very large. It's not a size of resource problem. Uh, nuclear, um, uh, despite being a nuclear physicist, I know less about nuclear than some other issues. Um, it's very clear that existing nuclear technologies um, are uh, not going to be cost effective with wind and, and, and solar. If you look at uh, the costs of, of nuclear, they've not been coming down. If, if anything, they've been going up as, as safety precautions have increased. And they are now two and three times as expensive as, um, uh, as renewables. There are claims that smaller uh, new designs of nuclear could change that, um, but I think it's almost inconceivable that they will do so on the timescales that are needed uh, to address climate change by, by, by 2050, because these essentially are designs that have not yet been built. So to go from not built to making a major contribution uh, to supply, that's challenging even for wind and, and solar, but I, I don't see uh, mini nuclear contributing very much to that. And I think so some of the interesting questions move beyond the questions of outright potential towards how you integrate these together in a system which I think you'll come to won't you but I may just slip in one more question while we're on it. Um, a good question from Holly Devitt um, asking about other countries particularly large countries in sub-Saharan Africa because you touched on the fact that energy access is, is really a, a human right and clearly there are going to be increases in demand there and you talked about the, the falling costs of some of these technologies. But Holly asks, do you think countries like Nigeria and Kenya, for instance, can avoid carbon lock-in, uh, given they're not developing as quickly as China or India, she says. Um, and do, do you see these relatively big economies as a threat in the sense that they will be big emitters in the future? 
Um, I, I think uh, if those economies grow to be big emitters, then we absolutely will not achieve the, uh, the, the targets that have been set out in Paris. It's imperative to, to us all, not only that we escape our own carbon locking, but that we prevent uh, carbon locking ever, ever setting in in, in in those countries where, uh, as, as the question says, the, the demand is, is going to grow and ought to grow. Um, is it part? Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the the costs of solar generation in those countries are are now lower than uh, importing coal or gas, which normally would be imported in in uh, in East Africa at least, in not 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 so in West Africa. Um, there is no reason other than vested interests um, for uh, countries that don't have. Uh, strong electricity supply systems at the moment to to invest in anything other than renewable technology, given that those are the cheapest options. It's a, it's a much more stark answer than it used to be, and I think, but yeah, you know, it probably people probably haven't fully uh, digested the sort of scale and changes in, in in cost that we've seen in the last decade. Uh, and of Thanks, course, Nick. yeah, uh, my vested interest point was to thrown in there but i mean i think it is it is an important point um that a lot of the inertia is due to um the fact that um uh, for certain interest groups notably the fossil fuel industries but also the people who make their power generating plant and the whole supply chains uh this is this is a big threat and of course it is yeah we can't deny that as you say a situation has changed really quite recently and perhaps um some companies and policymakers still have to catch up with the new reality. Um, so do keep bringing in your questions. I'll let you get on, Nick, with the next section of your talk, and then I'll fire a few more right. at you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's important not to uh, uh, run away with the idea that this becomes easy because uh, all these technologies, even if they are relatively cheap or capital intensive, uh, and so the, uh, the the capital investment required, which I'm not going to go into in any detail, is is still large. So it is important that we uh, use less energy and and and, and use it more efficiently. Um, and the good news is that we've been doing that for quite a long time. Um, this is another chart taken from the last um, IPCC report. Uh, and it simply looks at the four contributions to, um, uh, to, to, to overall carbon emission, as the so-called Kaya identity, for those of you who know that. Um, the um, population, uh, GDP per capita, uh, energy intensity of GDP, and, and carbon intensity of energy. Uh, and in principle, uh, multiplying all those to get together gives you carbon emission. So this chart shows uh, the change in each decade due to each of those factors uh, 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 over the globe. Um, and as you would expect, population increase and GDP per capita have been growing and they, they tend therefore to increase uh, emissions. Carbon intensity of energy has changed, well, depressed, that's the, which is the red uh, bar, has been changing, well, depressingly slowly actually in these four decades and even in the wrong direction in the uh, in the decade from 2001 to 2010 uh, that that change being because of the the, the rapid industrialization based around coal in in some countries in in, in 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 that decade and what that means is to the extent that we've uh, addressed um uh, uh climate mitigation and, uh, and, and and done anything to reduce carbon emissions it's been through uh, improved energy intensity of, of GDP, uh, partly due to changes in structure of the economy, but largely due to technological improvements in, uh, in, in in energy efficiency. So we have done something in this area, and we are we are doing something. Um, uh, this is uh, just to illustrate that in a bit more detail, uh, based on uh, UK experience. So this is a, a preview of, uh, of some data from a, a forthcoming paper by Ian Lees and myself. Um, and it's looking at how the UK has reduced its emissions over the last uh, 30 years. Um, <coughs> uh, 
we did it because the two of us were involved in in a paper that went to the UK cabinet in in 1989. So we thought it would be good good to look 30 years back and, and see uh, see what's happened. And you can see that there've been um, substantial contributions from uh, fuel switching and electricity, both coal to gas and, and renewable electricity. Uh, but by far, the, the most substantial uh, contribution has been through uh, improved end use efficiency. It's slightly cheating uh, to put it all in, in one bar. I mean, it's actually industrial energy efficiency, building energy efficiency and, and transport energy efficiency. And, and all of those have contributed. Um, but you can see that I, I, I intend to use this chart to annoy people who work in both the nuclear industry. Uh, and the CCS industry that their contributions have been um, uh, negligible over the same period. Um, so energy efficiency uh, has been doing something. Uh, uh, this is to preempt the question: Can it? How much more can it do? <coughs> uh, taken from the work of uh, Julian, uh, of uh, Jonathan Cullen, and Julian Allwood, uh, the short answer is that thermodynamically. Uh, we are a way away from the optimum energy efficiency. Uh, we can do something like a six-fold improvement uh, to deliver the energy services that we want from uh, the energy that we currently use. Some of that is the conversion of uh, improved uh, devices, improved engines, uh, etc., uh, improved light bulbs. Uh, but a lot of it is also uh, improving uh, the broader system. So things like insulating buildings, uh, using public transport instead of, uh, of, of, of private cars. Uh, when you combine all those, you get to a, a very big potential. Uh, and one other chart from the IPCC, uh, this is what the IPCC calls a simple chart. Um, they, uh, you don't want to see the complicated ones. Um, and what it's trying to do is show how different approaches uh, to carbon mitigation in energy supply, energy demand reduction and land use change relates to the other sustainable development goals. Uh, and the broad picture is that uh, energy demand uh, seems to have more synergies with the other uh, sustainable development goals and fewer trade-offs than other uh, ways of reducing emissions. Uh, and particularly uh, the energy supply side changes. So that there are often very good reasons other than uh, climate change uh, to look hard at improving the efficiency uh, with which we use energy. So I think, Nick, you've you've made a good case in, in answer to actually one of the questions asked by Arno about, in your opinion, does reduced energy demand equal degrowth? I think you've you said fairly clearly that you think it is possible to reduce energy demand in the UK, for instance, and not have a material impact on the quality of life. Maybe you want to say a, a bit more directly to that. And also, one thing that I hear talked about uh, in different fora is the idea of a rebound effect to energy efficiency. So if you um, if people save energy and save money by having a more efficient car, for instance, they might want to drive more and so you get a rebound in terms of more demand or it might be indirect demand in that they save money in other ways and they spend that to fly somewhere else on holiday so i've personally seen quite mixed messages about that i've seen some people who say that's all pervasive and makes efficiency a pointless exercise uh, i've heard others say that it's it's tiny and immaterial okay. where do you sit on that um, debate so let, let's start with with degrowth. Uh, I mean, I showed the effect of, of, of growth on emissions. Growth does tend to increase emissions. There's 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 no doubt about that. Other things being equal, growth increases energy use and increases emissions. But as you said, Steve, we can um, reduce energy demand without um, uh, and have economic growth. That's not to say we should. I think there's a perfectly respectable debate to be had uh, about degrowth, um, but it's not necessary for us to reduce energy demand. And those numbers that I've shown uh, from both internationally uh, and, and from the Committee on Climate Change are assuming uh, continued uh, economic growth. So I think those two uh, debates are, are, are slightly different. Um, the degrowth debate is not, not one for me. 
particularly and it's not one I would fancy taking to national governments at the moment. Um, the, uh, the, the, the point about uh, energy demand is that not just by improving efficiency, but also doing what you might call uh, progressive lifestyle changes. So uh, changes that allow us to uh, access each other without traveling, something we've all got a lot better at in the last um, 10 months. Um, you know, we've we've learned we can do uh, we can change the nature of the energy services that we consume without being worse off. Um, <clears throat> rebound effect. Um, yeah, it's a big question. Um, the the you can think of it in two broad types of rebound. The first, the ones that you described, Steve, which are um, if 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 I save money, what what do I spend it on, uh, and does that uh, increase energy use again uh, to some extent yes it does uh, the most energy intensive uh, thing we know about though is energy not surprisingly and energy is 100% energy so if you save energy and spend it on something else it's likely to be less than 100% energy uh, and therefore uh, you don't spend yeah, the, the odds are that uh, saving energy means you spend your money on a whole mix of things it's perfectly possible, of course, that all the money you spend, save uh, in, say, getting more efficient lighting, you would uh, spend on traveling by air, in which case you probably would increase your, your energy use. But if you look at the mix of things people buy, you tend to find that that direct rebound effect is of the order of 10% of to 30%. So the higher end of that range, often for poorer people, uh, if they are, say, insulating a house that's cold, then they perfectly reasonably take some of that benefit as a warmer house rather than a lower fuel bill. That's, um, uh, and I'm not convinced that's a bad thing either. It seems to me that that's in the notion of sustainable development somewhere. Um, there's a broader and more complex area to do with the macroeconomic effects of energy saving. And this actually feeds back into growth. What is the effect of improving our energy efficiency on, on, on growth? Um, that's a more complex question uh, and it could be that at times in history um, improving energy efficiency has so much increased economic growth um, that it has off offset savings. That was Jevons' original idea. This is originally called Jevons' paradox uh, and Jevons observed that increasing efficiency of coal use in steam engines, that's how far this goes back, uh, was, in, was increasing the use of coal in Great Britain. Um, and so uh, I think the conclusion is that for uh, technologies that are rapid stages of development where efficiency is very important to them, that can increase energy use at least in that local area on, on, on that technology. And I, I think the evidence is that's where we are with with um, uh, information technology at, 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 at the moment. The efficiency of IT has grown by orders of magnitude, the energy efficiency of processing, um, but so as the amount of processing uh, that, 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 that we as a society do. So there are some uh, exceptions, but the general rule is it's a 10 to 30% effect probably. So not to be ignored, and indeed, good policy analysis now does take this into account. For instance, uh, home energy efficiency programs in the UK take into a, a, a account when they calculate the carbon savings that uh, we will get warm homes uh, by, by doing that. Um, shall I move on, Steve, to the key challenges? Please do. Okay. Um, so I just want to talk about a couple of key challenges that are, arise um, from this really substantial change that's being envisaged to a, a highly renewable and much more efficient energy system. The first is the challenge of variability um, because solar and wind are, are variable. Um, this is, of course, because we are uh, moving to solar and wind implies um, using the flows of natural energy that, that, that come to earth rather than uh, digging up uh, 
uh, energy that's been captured from those flows over hundreds of millions of years, which is what we're doing with coal or oil, oil and gas. Um, so it's a good thing in that way uh, in terms of sustainability, but electricity systems do need to be balanced and they need to be balanced on really quite short time scales. We're talking about seconds here, the supply and the demand need to be balanced on, on that sort of uh, time scale. So the transition to renewables increases the need for flexibility in, in, in electricity systems and that is uh, a significant challenge. The second challenge uh, really rely, uh, lies outside uh, the electricity system. Uh, clearly some of our uses of energy are already electricity, things like lighting, uh, and, and some can be relatively easily switch to electricity and, and, and decarbonized in that way. And the obvious example there, which we're beginning to see is electric vehicles. Uh, but other uses of energy can't be electrified as easily. It's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to electrify aircraft or, 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 or cement kilns. And therefore we may need to think about uh, what are called other zero carbon vectors or other ways that energy can be moved around in a zero carbon form. So I briefly address each of those challenges. That this sort of illustrates the uh, the balancing problem. It's, it's some data taken from uh, Germany. It's about five years old now, so it's got even more profound since then. Uh, the chart shows generation in um, uh, from solar and wind. Uh, blue is offshore wind. Green is onshore wind. Yellow is solar. In the month of August, uh, 2015. And you can see that very characteristic daily uh, uh, vari variation in, in solar, uh, the size of depending on how cloudy it is. And then a much uh, more apparently random variation in wind, but with windy and not windy periods, typically being of the order of, of days rather than hours. Uh, the net effect was that the, the, the sum of uh, wind and solar output varied from about 2% to 70% of total demand uh, in, in Germany in, in that month. Uh, and the rest of the system had to, to balance that. Now, when you think that Germany wants to treble its renewables from that, that level uh, to, uh, to, to meet its climate targets, you can rapidly see that uh, you get periods of of the of, of the day, most days in summer, when um, solar, uh, in particular, has the capacity to supply more than 100% of demand. Uh, and indeed, it's one of the the oddities of this problem of variability that, uh, whereas people have often thought about the the main problem being what happens if it isn't sunny and windy? How do we, where do we get our energy from? Which is a, a, a real issue. I'm not attempting to deny that. The first problems that are being met are actually, well, we've got too much energy when it's sunny and windy uh, and the prices fall to zero. Uh, and in, in some cases, grid systems have had difficulty coping with too much energy. Uh, but we certainly do need to look at how we cope with that. The uh, the, the work that I with colleagues have been involved in in the, uh, the Oxford Martin programme on integrate, integrating renewable energy, Integrate, uh, has been doing that for the last um, few years. I'm not going to try and describe our work in detail. This is almost our, 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 our summary slide. Uh, there are potential solutions. Uh, you can have a flexible other generation on, on the system. You can store energy. You can interconnect to other electricity systems. You can use demand response, i.e. vary demand in time, depending on what supply looks like. And, and, and clearly, uh, information technology uh, is giving us more potential uh, to do that. But in each of those cases, it's not just a technical problem. That's the, 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 the thinking that underpins Integrate. It's, it's an economics and market problem. Uh, there are some, there, there are clear social issues, particularly with distributed storage and, and, and demand response, uh, and the whole policy framework may, may need to change as well. So please do take a look at our, 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 um, our, our website if you're interested in that. There's a huge amount of work that's been going on in how to solve these problems. And we do think they are in general soluble, but it will be possible to have electricity systems 
with very, very high levels of um, intermittent and variable generation on them. So that we think is uh, largely soluble. There's just one exception to that, which uh, where I think more work is probably needed. So this looks at the particular area of, of energy storage and the chart there you can see uh, for the price of uh, lithium ion batteries, very reminiscent of what we've seen with, with, with solar costs in that earlier slide. Uh, the price of batteries is now set to fall below $100 a kilowatt hour. They are being made in hugely greater amounts than they used to be, of course, particularly for uh, the, the, the growing uh, electric vehicle sector. And that potentially makes batteries a game-changing technology for diurnal storage, so for storing for a few hours, and therefore really does change the economics of standalone solar systems for, uh, for, for, for developing countries because uh, it means that you can use solar energy uh, to provide uh, uh, nighttime, uh, nighttime energy services. But batteries will not be suitable for longer term storage. They remain too expensive, in, in particular for interseasonal energy storage uh, in, in coal countries or even relatively cold countries like the UK. We use far, far more energy in winter than, than, than in summer. And how to move energy from summer into winter remains a, 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 an essentially unresolved problem in the uh, problem. In fossil fuel energy systems, we relied on piles of coal and, uh, and, and tanks of oil. It was easy, but in, uh, in renewable dominated systems, we will need to look for new ways of doing that. Uh, and that uh, remains a, a significant research and, and development challenge. The second uh, uh, area of hard, uh, uh, challenge, I think, is what are called the hard to decarbonize sectors. Although we talk a lot about electricity and I've been doing that here, we need to remember 80% of final energy demand at the moment is for fuels other than electricity. Uh, and although uh, things like light vehicles and a lot of space heating can relatively easily be converted to, uh, to electricity though, I mean, not that easily. These are big economic shifts. There are sectors which look actually technically quite hard to decarbonize. Uh, aviation, shipping, uh, heavy road vehicles where, where batteries might just be too heavy uh, for, 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 uh, to, to power lorries. Some industrial processes like primary steel making and, and cement and, and even peak uh, demand for, for, for space heating, which uh, electricity may not be able to uh, do all on its own. Um, and so we need to think about uh, how we're going to decarbonize those. And uh, as I indicated, that points towards using some other vectors. There's a, a range of things being looked at for other ways of moving um, energy around that don't impose a carbon uh, uh, disbenefit. Heat uh, already used extensively, of course, and can be stored for, for days, but um, hard to store at high temperatures and not suitable for some end users. Hydrogen, I guess, is the front runner in, at the moment in thinking about uh, uh, these hard to decarbonize sectors. It can be made either from natural gas with uh, carbon capture and storage. And I think this is probably the, the principal area of interest for carbon capture and storage as a technology now. Or, or it can be made um, by electrolysis. Um, and if you think about that chart from Germany that I showed you earlier with uh, huge spikes of, of, of uh, excess electricity at times, that points to using that, uh, that spare electricity that would otherwise just be uh, essentially thrown away uh, for electrolysis for hydrogen. Um, there are other uh, vectors that are perhaps somewhat easier to move around and use than hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen um, is, uh, uh, needs to be uh, uh, cooled to very low temperatures uh, or raised to very high pressures to make it easily transportable. Uh, and I think ammonia, a lot of work going on in Oxford uh, on, on ammonia and I think 
particularly uh, people looking at uh, shipping as one area where ammonia may be a, a good fuel. And then uh, in aviation in particular, um, other synthetic carbon-based fuels, they would be the easiest to plug in essentially to make some, some uh, artificial kerosene to replace uh, aviation fuel. Uh, but if that's to be net zero, it needs to come from a sustainable uh, biological uh, uh, carbon source. So um, back to the questions there about the sustainability of, of, of bioenergy. Um, and you will see that these questions about um, what vectors we might use for difficult to, to decarbonize sectors are, are linked to the questions about longer term energy storage and that uh, uh, fuels like hydrogen and ammonia might be used for both. And I think that's um, uh, the link between those, those two areas is, is important and probably at the moment understudied. Uh, so, that, I mean, those are my conclusions. I'll just whip through them very quickly. Energy services are critical to any modern society, but they are our main source of greenhouse gas emissions. That's why energy is such an important topic. We're probably going to get to be, need to be close to zero, and that implies a major change quickly. We sort of know the broad picture of that, improve efficiency and switch to renewables, uh, and it seems uh, feasible. Uh, without huge cost to the economy, but still very high investment. But there are these huge major challenges around uh, changing to a system based on variable natural flows of energy uh, away from the, the, the stored and unsustainable sources we use at the moment, uh, and what we're going to use for uh, to replace fossil fuels in some of the more difficult applications where electricity doesn't seem like it will be appropriate. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, That's a great overview. And we've had lots of questions, which unfortunately we won't have time to get all the way through, but I'll do my best to group a few. Um, we've had several questions about specific, the role of specific technologies. Um, probably too many to go through in detail because they're all interesting in their own right. But for instance, people have asked about the role in electricity, specifically about uh, carbon capture and storage, about tidal power, um, others have asked, uh, we've discussed briefly about nuclear power, and some others have, have asked about potential ideas such as uh, converting CO2 directly into aviation jet fuel. So I don't know if you want to pick on any of those yeah. specifically, um, maybe the other one, but also I, I may just roll this in with, with Miles's question just in case you want to uh, uh, attack this in the same way. But Miles Allen asks, how can we design policies to ensure that low carbon energy options compete for investment? With fossil fuels rather than with each other because for, for me at least for, uh, i may be being you well uh, wrongly here miles but for me there's this interesting question between these specific individual technologies and it's quite easy to get fixated on one answer versus a sort of technology neutral approach and the, the role uh, the difference and emphasis between going for new innovative things versus sticking with rolling out what we know so um Yes, maybe you can sort of pick out any of those specific technologies you want to address, but comment more generally on what you think the, the policy framework should be to, to give as level playing field as is needed to deliver the overall target. Yeah, okay. I mean, just a, a quick word on some of those individual technologies. Tidal, yeah, I mean, Tidal is interesting, but it's never going to be available on a scale uh, that's that's anything like the, the scale of, of 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 total 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 energy demand. Uh, CCS. Uh, I think the reason I've said I don't think CCS has got much of a future in electricity generation. I think there are far more interesting questions about CCS on some of these difficult to decarbonize processes like blast furnaces and and, and cement kilns. Though it, it's far from trivial there, uh, and there's questions about CCS for hydrogen. Um, production if we think and I do think we will need hydrogen or something like hydrogen uh, for 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 quite a few purposes um, on the overall policy framework well I, I guess I would just push back on whether um, uh, technology neutrality is quite the right way to think about it because this is a systemic problem and for example, um, a combination of wind and solar, we know much better balances 
they uh, the the uh, the the demand for electricity in the UK than either uh, wind or solar on its own, and that's true in 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 many countries. Um, and you may find that you want uh, a balance of relatively what's called in the the the, the, the jargon dispatchable energy sources, so things like uh bioenergy geothermal things that you could the way you could switch the power station on and off and and, uh, and wind and solar which aren't so um you may actually deliberately want to treat some different resources differently and certainly when you get into these difficult to decarbonize uh, sectors um you will have to look at other resources so not 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 all units of energy are of equal value, partly because of time uh, considerations when they're available, but partly because of what you want to use them for. So um, I think it's a bit more complex than, uh, oh, we need to be technology neutral, which is, I it's the standard economic answer to everything, isn't it, Steve? And like the standard economic answer to most things, it's, it's a bit simplistic. Well, as a physicist, I can possibly uh, respond on that. Well, I'm, gonna, either, so. I'm going to try to chew on in three more questions actually before we go because there's lots of very good ones. One um, um, asking a bit more about the demand side of the picture that you talked about, demand reduction specifically from uh, Derek Neal. Um, he says that you did out a necessity for reduction in uh, demand reduction in the coming decade. Is that really a realistic assumption? Um, Derek says demand has increased for the past decades. How do you practically reduce demand in first world nations? Now, my understanding actually is that in several first world nations now, demand is reducing. But perhaps you can yeah. talk to that and explain yeah, how you my, practically achieve it's it. My, my standard quiz question with a, a, a large audience is to ask the, uh, in, in person is to ask them how much energy demand has gone up in the UK in the last 15 years. The answer, of course, is gone down 15%. So this is part of uh, energy efficiency working so is it realistic to reduce demand yeah hugely i mean the the the, car, the the committee on climate change projections are based on what is feasible and economic and, and, and realistic and i think what is of people often miss is that if you electrify vehicles that's not just switching the fuel it's improving the efficiency of that vehicle by a factor of three if you shift from a gas boiler to a heat pump, you're improving the efficiency by a factor of three or four. So some of these changes that are now thought to be inevitable and necessary produce huge improvements in energy efficiency. And indeed, it's almost impossible to contemplate just going on using the amount of energy that we are if we move away from fossil fuels towards largely electric systems. Very interesting. Thanks, Nick. Um, Penultimate question from Max Boykoff, a bit more of a geopolitical question here about energy systems. Um, what are your thoughts on early signs from the US Biden administration and how they might influence the feasibility for moving to zero carbon energy uh, in the UK and around the world? Uh, hello, Max. Nice to hear from you. Um, I, I think uh, you'd be better placed to, to, to answer that than I am. Um, but I think, I mean, weren't we all delighted that day? Um, it's, um, I think the signs are good. Um, the, the signs are that Biden wants to uh, engage with international negotiations, but also that he seems to be serious about the nuts and bolts of the sort of boring things in energy efficiency, like appliance standards and, and vehicles, and um, that he's realised that, um, that that oil pipelines aren't, aren't, aren't needed and that renewables are cheaper. So I think both internationally and, and nationally, it, 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 it looks pretty good, fingers crossed. But um, yeah, the, the devil will, will, of course, be in the detail when he starts to meet the vested interests. Great. Final question as we come to the top of the hour. Uh, it's actually the most voted question, and it's a great one from Ellie. Uh, bringing it all uh, directly to us and our, our individual contexts. What's the most effective way for individuals to reduce their footprint? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Like most great questions, it doesn't have a very simple answer. Um, uh, there's a, 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 have we got a way of, of uh, pointing people at, at 
uh, uh, particular papers. There's a great paper by a credit colleague of mine, uh, Diana Ivanova and, and others, which actually reviewed the whole of the literature to, 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 um, to, to identify the top 10 areas, which inevitably I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm very happy to point people at that. There is no one thing because we use energy in uh, you know, in, in our food systems, in in our uh, buildings, in transportation, and yeah, we need action in all of those areas, basically. Perhaps we can uh, get that up onto the web page of this talk, or we can get it uh, tweeted on the yeah. on the marketing channel if we can dig that out. But great question, yes, thank you, and thank you very much to uh, all of you as as well as to uh, Professor Nick Air for joining us today. Um, join us again next Monday, in which uh, in the next one of the series, we'll be discussing the concept of sensitive intervention points for net zero. That will be with uh, Professor Cameron Hepburn, Suganda Srivastav and myself. Um, if you're on Crowdcast at the moment, you can register by clicking the green button under the video screen. Uh, but in the meantime, have a very good week.